So our time in 1 Samuel is quickly coming to an end. We're racing to the finish, not literally, but we're trying to move through just to keep capture the big storyline. And we've got this very, very interesting story to talk about this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 25. We'll actually be through 25 and 26. Feel free to turn there if you've got a Bible with you. Feel free to just listen uh, if you'd rather do that as well. I caught some of the coverage, and I find this unbelievable, of the uh, Prince William and Princess Kate. Is that what we call her? Princess? I don't even know. Duchess? There you go. Thank you. Yeah, princess would be like unmarried, right? I have no idea. But they, they've had another baby, right? Congratulations to them. And this is, you know, massive news because we all love the king and queen of England for some reason. <laughs> There's not enough to, to be broadcast. So I remember when they got married, like there was weeks and weeks of coverage, and then the first baby was born, and now this baby, and apparently they, there was gambling done on what this child's name would be. Right? Can you imagine this? And so the name that they chose was, let's see if I get this right, because I really was tuning in. I was so captivated <laughs> by this story. It was Princess Charlotte Elizabeth Diana. Because royalty has to have a million names, don't they? They've got to have a million. So Charlotte, because they're naming uh, her after Prince William's father, Charles, right? And Charles wouldn't be a good girl's name, so they went with Charlotte. And Elizabeth after the queen, and then Diana after his mother. And so I was thinking about this. Think about this. It would be a fun exercise to do. If you were the, the prince or the duchess, and you had a a daughter, and you had to name her after your father, your grandmother, and your mom, what would your child's name be? Do you want to hear what mine's would be? My, uh, Rachel and I would be the proud parents of a daughter named Harriet Frances Jerry. <laughs> Crazy. My dad's name is Harry, so I'm figuring Harriet's got to be the closest girl's name, right? Yeah, so fun exercise to figure it out. The royals are so exciting. Well, we, we love to just watch their lives. Not really, but... I was thinking about this because we meet again in 1 Samuel chapter 25, a person with an interesting name, and his name has a radically important meaning that is going to help us understand this whole text. And if we miss it, then we'll miss everything the author's trying to say. You might remember a few months ago we met Ichabod. Do you remember? Crazy Ichabod, and his name means where's the glory? And it was really our way to understand everything that was happening in that context. Today we meet a man named Nabal, right? Or as we Americans want to call him, Nabal. <laughs> and so Nabal is, has an, a name which is a Hebrew word which literally means fool. His name is fool. Now, imagine if your name was fool. Can you imagine if your parents, now, we've talked about this before, if you were born to a celebrity, there's a good chance your name could be fool, because I don't know what they're thinking when they name their kids. So, somehow, either this, this man's real name is Nabal, or, maybe more likely, the author is imposing a name on him, because we need to understand exactly what's happening here. What does it mean to be a fool? You might use that word in all kinds of different contexts in your everyday life. In the biblical context, the fool has a very specific meaning. 
Uh, Literally, it means someone who does not follow the ways of God. Someone who is delinquent in a relationship with God or someone who is turned against God. So you have a very famous verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then it goes on to say, But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so what we understand then is that the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and if fools despise wisdom, then what fools really do is they despise the fear of the Lord. Now, fear in the Hebrew context doesn't mean being terrified, although there's a little bit of that reality. It means being in awe of, right? Being a worshiper of. Paul kind of takes this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he goes on to explain that in the Christian life, if you're really following God, then you should look at the world as foolishness. So he had this idea defined of not following God as foolishness. And then when he writes to the Galatians, uh, the church at Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, this is what he says to them. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And the context is that the church in Galatia is a church that Paul has started, and he's taught them the gospel. And then when he's gone his own way, new teachers have come in and have corrupted the gospel, and the church has begun to follow this corruption of the gospel rather than what Paul has taught them. And what does he call them? Fools. Right? Because fool is being delinquent or pulled away from following God. So, this is the biblical idea of fool. Now we're going to jump into this story in 1 Samuel and try to understand exactly what is happening here. And we're going to start with none other than Nabal himself to figure out what does it mean to be a fool. What we'll find out is he is not alone in his foolhardiness. There's plenty of people that can be labeled fool. Let me just read uh, the beginning verses here in chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him. They buried him at his home in Ramah, and David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. Uh, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean. Uh, we wonder who wrote this chapter. I'm thinking Abigail had a little, little something to do with penning this chapter, right? Uh, in his dealings, he was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Uh, so he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name and say to him, a long life to you, good health to you and to your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. So here's the context. David is off with his men, still hiding from Saul, but in the meantime, he's providing some kind of military or security protection for Nabal's shepherds who are off letting the sheep eat. And Nabal is back just collecting money, collecting money. And so when the season is done and the sheep are being driven back to Nabal's uh, own land, David says, hey, Let's go ask him sort of for repayment for what we've provided for him. And David is expecting repayment. He's not going to get that. Here's what Nabal says to him. 
Uh, verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? <laughs> Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back and reported every word to David. See, Nabal is foolish because he's greedy. Nabal is foolish because he's greedy. Think about these two realities in terms of of Nabal. Uh, David provides this unbelievably important service for him, and yet he's still unwilling to sort of compensate him for it. Moreover, we can understand from the context here, from some of the things that Nabal says to David, in fact, that he knows his name, that he knows he's from Jesse, that he knows he's broken away from his master Saul, right? We, We infer all of that. We infer even later from his wife Abigail that they know he's God's anointed king to come. And so what you have from Nabal is not just rejecting someone who provided security for him, he's also knowingly rejecting the anointed king of God who's asking him for something. This is bold for someone to do. But greed is driving him. See, he's playing the fool because he's greedy. In the economy of Nabal, what's his is his. And he's not willing to give up on any of it to enable this coming kingdom of God as good as it may be. Church, I wonder if we often play the fool like Nabal. If we are greedy people, and I know that we are, right? And start with me. We all are. We define greed in a different way. We don't like the word greed. Greed sounds terrible, and so we rarely use it unless there's some enemy we have, and then we're free to use it on them. A better word in our society that we like, that we use and throw around a little bit is the word entitlement. And all entitlement is is a new modern word for greed. You hear it? And so we are entitled to all of these things because we've earned them or we deserve them or they're ours. But in God's economy, nothing is yours. Everything is His and you are stewards and managers of it. Do you see the difference between being grace-bound, in other words, God has given me, versus entitlement-bound, this is mine, I'll do with it what I want. We read stories like this of Nabal, and we think, what a jerk. And then we never pause to look at our lives and think, man, I'm a jerk. You know? We are so entitled to our stuff that we can't even begin to think that our resources might be better served for God's use in someone else's hands rather than our own. So let me ask you something this morning. Your resources and how you use them will define who is your king. So who is your king? Let me just be honest with you. More often than not, in my life, I'm the king. And I bet your life is often the same. I call the shots. I do what I want with my stuff. Listen, I'm not, I'm not telling you how to handle your stuff, and resources is way bigger than money. This isn't just about money. For David, he just wanted a meal for crying out loud. But I wonder how you handle your resources. If you are more defined by how tightly you grip them or more defined by how open your hands are. I once heard someone say this, and I think it's so true that the glory of an open hand is not just that someone can take from it, but that also that someone can put into it. Do you see it? 
when we are greedy like Nabal, we're fools. We're not living the way that God intended us to. But listen, no one sets out to be greedy, do they? Unless you're different than me and you decide, you wake up this morning, you know what, today I want to be defined by greed. That's what I want to be known by. No one really does that. And so we have to figure out, how do we get from a place of wanting to follow God, of wanting to be kingdom-oriented, of wanting to use our things, and then yet become these people who are tight-gripped? Right? How does Nabal go from a person who has been blessed richly to a person who is holding tightly? We get a look a little bit closely to the text. There was this one interesting descriptive word of Nabal that you might have missed. It says Nabal was a Calebite. Did you hear that when we read? And the author wouldn't say that unless it was important. And to be a Calebite was actually a good thing. To describe him as a Calebite wasn't to say, oh, he's from bad people. What it really means is he's from really good people. If you remember back to the two spies who were the good spies, who were they? Joshua and Caleb, right? And Caleb understood that the land was a gift from God. Do you remember? We can have this land. God is giving it to us. And suddenly this descendant of Caleb is saying, this is my land. No one can have it. Do you see the difference? See, the problem for Nabal isn't that he decided, I want all my stuff and no one can have it. The problem from Nabal is he stopped being vigilant about following the faithfulness of his ancestors and his tribe. You see it? And I wonder how often that is true for us. How often we get off the tracks of following in the faithfulness of our people. Maybe you were blessed to grow up in a home where your parents instilled in you not religion, but a passion to follow Jesus and make His kingdom known. And it's so easy, unless you are vigilant, to keep in that path to become completely diverted from it. For many of you, some of your, your story of your family is different than that. And you came to faith in a different place, or you came to faith through other people, but there have been significant people in your life who have moved you and who have motivated you and who have inspired you and who have instructed you. And yet it is so easy to move away from their instruction when we're hearing so many other things from the world. But here's what I want to tell you. That the first step away is a step into foolishness. Do you see it? Or think about it maybe even in this more profound way because I think here is how it most especially applies. The writer of Hebrews says this. In chapter 11, he explains that all of these people who have gone before us, who have, who have exhibited faith in God in profound ways, Abraham and, and all the likes of them, he goes through a huge list. And then he says in the beginning of chapter 12, since you have such a great cloud of witnesses, therefore fix your eyes on Christ and run the race with perseverance. And when he says you have such a great call of witnesses, he's not limiting it to just those people he listed in Hebrews chapter 11. He's saying everyone who has loved God and loved Jesus who has gone before you, if you are not digging in to their reality, then it's a step towards foolishness. Do you see it? And so I wonder in the Hebrews chapter 12 spectrum, who are the people who are inspiring you? Who are your spiritual heroes? It is good and right to have heroes. 
Let me tell you a few of mine. Martin Luther. I love Martin Luther. Now, if you study the life of Martin Luther, there's plenty of bad. No one is suggesting we talk about heroes or your parents or people who have inspired you that they were perfect and that you need to do everything they said. No one is saying that, right? If we did everything Martin Luther said, we'd be in a whole heck of a lot of trouble. But Martin Luther was passionate about the gospel and was radically changed by it. And there are still realities from Martin Luther's life that inspire me today. Do you see it? If you are... If you are living in this great cloud of witnesses, if you are following in the trajectory of the movement of God, it is only going to be wind at your back to follow God. But when you step yourself out of it, suddenly there is no pushing wind. Now let's get even closer to the reality for just a minute. If you are not living in community with believers around you, you are making a foolish choice. If you are trying to go it alone, if you are saying no one understands what I'm going through and i got to do this on my own, that is foolishness. Because you will be so quickly swept adrift from the ways of God. Well, this doesn't mean you've got to plug into a community group at Hope. Maybe you've got a close circle of people that you are connected with and they're encouraging you and they're affirming you and they're telling you the gospel and they're pushing you towards God. That's it, right? Don't ever stray from it. And while you're at it, don't stray from the church. There's a reason why the writer of Hebrews, the same writer who wrote about the great crowd of witnesses, says, don't stop gathering with God's people for worship. Not because they're perfect. They are far from it. Not because church is perfect. Church has done, you know, church in general has done terrible things. People have been bitterly hurt by the church and people in it. But the foolish choice as a response to that is to say, I'm done with it. And I'm going on my own. Because suddenly your trajectory is open to the winds of this world. Do you see it? You see what's happening in the life of Nabal. When he stopped being a Calebite and now was only a Calebite in name only, right? suddenly he's opened up to this whole sway of living as if the land was his and not a gift from God. Maybe greed isn't your issue. There's some other thing that, that the enemy is pressing into you. And I can promise you, if you are isolated from church or from community, it will, be ne- it, will, it will be impossible to navigate that course. Don't be foolish. But Nabal is not the only fool here. Because David hears Nabal's answer and David's about to be a fool too. Right? Our great hero in the story is about to strike out big time. Listen to this. Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. (laughs) So in other words, David hears the report of what Nabal says. Nabal says, well, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? And David says, get ready to fight, right? His first sword doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, is that really what he said? He doesn't say, what does he mean? Or who is this guy? He says, strap on your sword. We're going to go. And then... Basically, David goes on to say, I'm going to kill everyone, not just Nabal. I'm going to kill all the men. 
And when he says the word men, it's translated really nicely in your Bible because no one needs to be offended. But in the the original Hebrew, it's a very vulgar statement. Extraordinarily vulgar when he refers to men. David is way more than just a little hot under the collar. Why? Because someone poked at his pride. And now David is playing the fool because he wants vengeance. Vengeance. Wonder how difficult it would be in our lives, and we face this, when our right action of giving of ourselves to protect someone else's sheep is met with the opposite wrong. How do you respond in situations like that, church? Are you more like David or less like David? Does, do you say in your proverbial, to your proverbial self, strap on your sword, we're going to fight? <laughs> and even if you don't say that, do your motivations and actions begin to become about getting back at other people? Or, maybe even a little less overtly, maybe a little more subtly, do your actions and motivations become about proving yourself to that person? That's all vengeance. We might think, well, I'll show them. I'm worthy of this. That's vengeance. Do you see it? And vengeance is the act of a fool. It says, my pride has been struck, and now I need to respond to it immediately. But once again, these choices don't happen in a vacuum. David didn't just say, enough's enough. I'm going to go kill some Maonites today, some Calebites. I've had enough of these people. We need to figure out how did David get to this point. And what is so interesting about the story is this story of David comes in the center of two other stories about David. We talked about one last week. Do you remember when Saul comes into the cave and David cuts off the corner of his garment and then feels extraordinarily guilty about it? And the men want to rush Saul and kill him and make David king? And David says, no, not now. And has this great restraint. And in the next chapter, which we'll talk about here in just a second, David sneaks into the camp of Saul while everyone is asleep, and he grabs Saul's spear, and he could kill him in that moment, but he doesn't. Yet, when David is willing to show restraint to Saul twice, right in the middle, we get really a good picture of the heart of David. Simply because someone made a statement about him, he's going to kill not only them, but everyone in the town. Saul's trying to kill him, and he's going to have restraint. But this guy says a bad thing about him, and he's going to kill him. See, David's restraint against Saul is much more fear of God than it is a heart that is humble. Do you see it? Because if he felt like he'd be okay to kill Saul, he certainly would. His guilt was that this was God's anointed, and how can I strike against him? But suddenly, when a more logic or a more real situation, a more possible reality comes, he's ready to not just strap on the swords, but to slaughter the whole town. I wonder if you've ever faced failure right after victory. See, David, I think, lets his guard down. He has this great spiritual victory in the cave at En Gedi. And then lets his guard down while he's 
watching some sheep and there seems to be no threat against his life. And that's when the enemy attacks him and says, how dare he call you that? Aren't you going to do something about it? And friends, this storyline in the Bible is prolific. We constantly find people in the Bible who come off spiritual highs with massive lows. Think about Noah, right? the one that God spares. He builds this ark when everyone is, is ridiculing him, and then the flood comes, and God saves the creation through Noah, and then when they finally get out, after this great high of salvation, of following God, what, do we, what does the story of Noah say? He gets drunk, and his nakedness is shown to his sons, right? This colossal low. Why? Because we let our guard down after great victory. What about Elijah, who's on Mount Carmel and pours water all over the sacrifices and still calls down fire from heaven, and God shows up in a powerful way. And then right after that, we find him hiding under a tree, depressed and afraid for his life. Why? Because the enemy always attacks us after great victory. Because he knows we're unbelievably weak. What about Peter? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Do you remember this great high? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I say that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says to him, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, this great spiritual high. And then Jesus goes on to explain to him more things because he feels like he's ready for it. And he says, I must be given over to the authorities and I'm going to die. And then Peter, after this great high, has this great low where he says, no, you will never do this. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus is keenly aware that Satan has attacked right after a spiritual high. When I was young, we took a family trip out west, and one of the things we did, I think I've told this story before, it's, it's an embarrassing story for me, is we rode mules down the Grand Canyon, and I was petrified. One, because I didn't like riding on a mule, let alone a horse, anything, so I don't want to ride on anything, right? I want to walk. Or better yet, let's drive, or teleport me there, right, or whatever. But we decided, for whatever reason, we're going to ride these mules down this canyon. And these paths are not big. And so there's switchbacks all the way down the grand, stinking canyon. And the mules, you can't do anything to them. If they see food that they want to eat, they're going to eat it, no matter how far they've got to stretch out over the edge to eat it. And so I'm sitting on this mule named Two Bits, and I am screaming like a little baby, Right? Uh, I don't know how old I was, old enough to not act like that, but I was terrified going all the way down this mountain. Here's the moral of the story in this context. Oftentimes, the descent from a high place is just as treacherous, if not more treacherous, than the climb up. But we often don't think it will be. We hike to the peak, and we think we've made it, but there's a whole descent back down. I don't know the topography of your spiritual life, but I know enough about how Satan works to tell you this. If you are not vigilant 
after a great spiritual victory in your life, you will see compromise. We are vigilant when we're struggling in calling on the name of God and fully dependent upon Him. And yet, when things seem to be going well, how vigilant are you at spending time with God? And what you will find is, in those circumstances, you are at the greatest risk of compromise. Don't be a fool. Cultivate your relationship with God just as hard in the high moments as the low moments. Lest you follow the voice of temptation. Well, it's not just Nabal and David. It's also Saul. I told the story just a little bit. In the next chapter, uh, David, Saul once again decides he's going to come after David, even though he's promised he won't do it. Right? And so we already see the, the foolish nature of Saul and that he's following David again, even though just in chapter 24 he has said, I know that God's going to make you king. He's revealed it to me. And yet he's still trying to stop it. Right? He's still in this hardcore path of opposing David. And we see the foolish nature of it. And we want to say, as readers just reading this story, why are you doing this again? You know how this is going to end. And then I think about our own lives, and I wonder, how often do we fall back into the same old patterns, even though we've said we'll never do it again? Even though we know they're the wrong thing? How often do we find ourselves in the same bad habits, caught again in the same addictions, dealing with the same sin issues, following the same life trajectory that leads in the wrong way, why is it so appealing to us? Well, again, we need to look closely at the story of Saul and figure out how he got to this point. Isn't it interesting to you that when David goes in there and he comes across Saul and Saul is sleeping and his spear is stuck into the ground right next to him. And David takes his spear and goes away. And when he's far enough away, he yells and shows everyone that he has a spear to show Saul that he could have killed him, but he didn't. But I think there's something even more interesting happening in the reality of Saul taking, or David taking the spear of Saul. Almost all of the time when we read about Saul in 1 Samuel, what does he have with him? The spear. He's got it everywhere. You know, and so whenever someone says something that he doesn't like, he's throwing that spear at them. And wherever he is, when he's just talking to his advisors, there's mention of him having a spear in his hand. Now he's sleeping, and the spear is stuck right next to him. He's never apart from this spear. Why? Because he trusts it. His trust is in his military ability. His trust is in his spear. When bad stuff comes, he's got it. Spear. Why does he keep following into all of these bad places? Because he's trusting in the wrong stuff. And the same is true for us. Why do we keep falling into these bad circumstances? Keep landing in the same place of addiction. Keep struggling with the same issues of sin. Keep moving into the, into the wrong life trajectories. Because we're trusting in the wrong thing. So many people trust in government. And when things don't go their way in political elections, whatever party side you're on or absence of party, however it is, you can tell how much people trust in it because they're distraught for months on end after an election. 
People trust in their vocation. People trust in their money. People trust in their family. We trust in so many things to get us through the circumstances of life. And yet far too little we trust in the Creator of life Himself. It's foolishness, isn't it? It's foolishness. How do you know if you're trusting too much in the wrong thing? Well, put yourself in Saul's position. How do you think he felt when he woke up and his spear wasn't there? And what would it be like for you to wake up and to not have that particular thing by your side? Could you imagine an existence without it? If you couldn't, then perhaps I could gently suggest to you that you are trusting too much in something other than God. If after a political election you go into a deep depression, you are trusting far too much in government. If in a difficult circumstance and job, your life goes into a complete despair, maybe you're trusting too much in your job. If you're constantly looking at your bank account and fixating on it and fixating on it, maybe you're trusting too much in money. If everything is thrown into being a mom or being a wife or being a dad and everything about you is built on that, can I just gently suggest to you you're trusting in the wrong thing. God values you for you, not for your position in life. And every step towards trusting the wrong things is a step towards foolishness. In these chapters, we meet this man named Nabal, and we're reminded of just how foolish we can be as people. And then there's this striking figure, almost like a single star shining in a black sky, and her name is Abigail. And while all of these men of high authority get it wrong, she gets it right. Now, this is remarkably provocative in an Old Testament context. Can you imagine this? The current king is shown in bad light. The the anointed next king is shown in bad light. And the wealthy man is shown in bad light. But the common woman, who is the wife of the man, is shown to be a hero in the story. This is provocative and, and scandalous in that society. But that's kind of just the way of God, isn't it? See, when Abigail comes, she's quite different than all three men because all of their motivations, if we're going to define them in one word, is pride. They care about themselves. But Abigail doesn't. She hears what her husband has said to David, and she knows what David is going to come to do, and she she acts on his behalf, and she gathers food and supplies, and she heads off David as he comes, and she explains to him what has happened, and she gives him this gift, and when she meets him, it says she falls on her face on the ground in front of him. Why? Because her whole existence is defined by the single word humility. She lives completely the opposite from these prideful men. And then she says something remarkable She claims the sin of Nabal for herself. Sound like someone else we know? This woman who did nothing wrong takes on the sin of her husband who was living completely rebellious to the way of God so that he could be saved 
and spared. Certainly she calls him a fool, but she does so to spare him. See, in this story, Abigail is the hero because she's no fool. But think about it for a minute. There's an even deeper storyline happening. Because we've come to expect Saul to act the way he does. And this guy, Nabal, we've kind of got a description that he's mean and gruff and loves his stuff. And so we're not surprised when he answers David the way that he does. But David, why is David behaving the way he is? After all, he's God's chosen one. He's the one who we're hoping in in this storyline, who all the people are putting their hope in to ascend to this king and to be everything that God wanted him to be. And when the, the, the curtain is cracked back and we get a peek at the condition of David's heart, what do we see? That he's no different than the rest of them. And this is a major problem. Because we are already seeing what we will find out if you read on into 2 Samuel, that David is going to fail as a king. Just like Saul did. And so we are posed with a major problem. This kingdom that God has announced, how can it be corrected? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is the promise that God makes to David. Your son, not you, your son, will sit on this throne forever. And when he said your son, he didn't mean Solomon. He meant the king who would come from the line of David. Friends, he was talking about Jesus. See, Jesus is already seen as necessary right here in the midst of this story of 1 Samuel. Because the king who God had anointed himself was already showing himself to be far less than the Messiah that this world needed. But in the son of David, we see something remarkable. What do we say about Nabal? How was he foolish? He was foolish because he was greedy. Right? What do we read about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2? He did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to tightly. But he willingly set it aside and was obedient to come to earth as a man, not just a man, but a servant, and was obedient even unto death, and death on a cross. See, Jesus is no fool. There's not an ounce of greed in Him. Everything was an effort for you. He gave it up. And what do we say about David? Why was he foolish? Because of vengeance, right? Someone struck him, and he was going to strike back. And as Jesus is being nailed to the cross, what are his famous words? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. See, Jesus is no fool. And then Saul. How was Saul foolish? He trusted in all the wrong things. And as Jesus grappled with the idea of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was arrested, and he was praying so strenuously that it was having physical manifestations, his prayers came to a head when he said what to God? 
Not my will, but yours be done. See, in Jesus, we finally have the King who God has always promised. And friends, you and I, we come from a long line of Nabal's and David's and Saul's. We are all prone to foolishness. But because of the work of Jesus on the cross, there's a whole new existence for fools like us. Listen to what Paul writes in the book of Titus to a young pastor. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. This is what, what Paul says to Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the good things we have done, but only because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. See, Jesus took on the shame of the cross to do what Paul says, to take captive a host of captives. In other words, to collect all the fools like us who have been deceived, who are disobedient, who have been enslaved to this world, and not because of any good thing we have done, but completely because of His love and mercy for us, has offered us a way to renewal. This is the Gospel. So what would Jesus say? Well, He told a parable. And perhaps this simple parable that we've learned when we were kids is what we should leave with this morning. Don't be foolish and build your house on the sand. Because when the storms come, it will be shattered. But the wise ones build their house on the rocks. And even when the storms of life come, it is unmoved. Can I pray with you?